Welcome to the Aerospace Engineering Podcast. My name is Reiner Groh, Research Fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering, and on this podcast I have conversations with aerospace pioneers about new technologies at the cutting edge of aerospace design and research. This episode of the Aerospace Engineering Podcast is brought to you by AnaliSwift. Do you work in the design and analysis of aerospace structures and materials? If so, AnaliSwift's innovative engineering software, SwiftComp, may be the solution you're seeking. Used either independently for virtual testing of aerospace composites or as a plugin to power conventional FEA codes, SwiftComp delivers the accuracy of 3D FEA in seconds instead of hours. A general purpose multi-scale modeling program, SwiftComp provides an efficient and accurate tool for modeling aerospace structures and materials featuring anisotropy and heterogeneity. SwiftCom quickly calculates the complete set of effective properties needed for use in macroscopic structural analysis. It also accurately predicts local stresses and strains in the microstructure for predicting strengths. Find out how others in composites are saving time while improving accuracy, considering more design options, and arriving at the best solution more quickly. A no-cost academic partner program is now available for eligible universities. For free trial, visit analyswift.com. SwiftComp. Write results right away. This episode is also sponsored by StressEbook.com, which is an online hub for you if you're interested in aerospace stress engineering. StressEbook.com provides world-class engineering services and online courses on the stress analysis of aircraft structures, as well as a free ebook and blog. No matter if you're a junior or senior structural analyst, StressEbook.com provides you with the skills and know-how to become a champion in your workplace. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh... Today I'm speaking to Michael Darcy, who's the Chief Commercial Officer of the British EVTOL company Vertical Aerospace. Vertical Aerospace is set out to change the way we fly short-haul distances and especially to reduce the time for end-to-end journeys. Their vision is to develop an intercity air taxi service that will give customers the freedom to fly from their local neighborhood directly to their destination. To achieve this, Vertical has assembled a world-class team with veteran engineers from Airbus, Boeing, Rolls-Royce, and leading from La One teams to design a fully certified eVTOL aircraft starting from first principles. Since their founding in 2016, Vertical Aerospace has already built the UK's first full-scale eVTOL aircraft and is iterating quickly to build the next generation of larger aircraft. One aspect that really stands out in this conversation is that vertical airspace focuses strongly on quickly iterating through the design, manufacture, and test cycle to improve their design in the most efficient way. So in this episode of the Aerospace Engineering Podcast, Michael and I discuss Vertical's particular approach to designing an eVTOL aircraft, how vertical airspace see the electric aviation sector developing, and which hurdles need to be overcome by the industry to build certifiable aircraft. So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Vertical Aerospace Chief Commercial Officer, Michael Darcy. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Rina. 
Before we delve into vertical aerospace, um, could you tell listeners a little bit about your background, so how you got into engineering and how your career has developed to where we are today? Yeah, of course. Um, it's funny because Raina's just come over from the Queen's building at, at Bristol University, um, and that is where I spent my tenure doing aerospace engineering. Uh, but taking a little bit of a further step back, um, I actually grew up spending a lot of time uh, working underneath cars uh, uh, with my brother, and we both grew a love of understanding the technicalities of how things worked. Um, there was always that biggest problem, which is looking up in the skies and then trying to understand flight and looking at aircraft and seeing the complication added to the level beyond a, a typical vehicle. Um, so really, it was my challenge to understand it. Um, I spent a year working in industry prior to university, working at Rolls-Royce Motorcars, and found a real love for vehicles still, but then it set my ambition straight as soon as I went and studied aerospace uh, to grow that interest uh, out into understanding that type of engineering. Wow, cool. So what, did, what happened after you left Bristol University? So I went and worked at Airbus. Um, I went and worked in the wing systems plant in Filton. Um, mostly focusing on projects around bringing robotics to a lot of their manufacturing. Um, at this point, I grew quite an understanding of some of the software and developments that robotics were using at the time, and that opened up um, me moving towards a, a more of a software-based software, software -based role and also getting into more of a commercial world, realizing that I had a, a strength in speaking to people uh, and I, actually putting the word out there about quite complicated things. Um, so I then moved on and worked for a company called Autonomy, uh, which was bought out by Hewlett-Packard. And this was very much building in machine learning using software for those purposes um, and really grew my career in, in more of a commercial side, but underneath it still applying engineering. Um, I then uh, went away with the military for, for some years and came back and took another role within a machine learning-based environment, a company called Darktrace. Um, and from there, I, I grew the business. So I actually got into much more of a, a more senior management role, growing commercial sides of the business, but again, um, utilizing software. Um, and then uh, the, the incredible opportunity at Vertical came about. It was uh, very much a, a conversation that was led from, from mutual friends and colleagues who had come out of Airbus, who are now working um, here at Vertical. Um, and they saw an opportunity to not only take a, a very engineering-focused organization and move it slightly more commercial with um, some of the skills that I've picked up, but also they wanted someone at the lead who has got aerospace engineering experience in the past. Great. So you mentioned uh, vertical, so let's you know jump straight into that. So what is the problem in the way that we fly today, specifically in terms of kind of the short-haul distances? So I see there's, there's two major problems. Um, Really, in our typical journey to even get to a hub where we can then fly somewhere, uh, we're hit with congestion. Uh, be that is a, a way to get to an airport um, by road transport, or even if you're in London as I am, uh, you have to take almost two or three different forms of transport before you actually sat on an aircraft itself. So the first is actually getting to those hubs. The second problem I see with this is it's only going to get busier. More and more people now want to travel, and it, it is a much more regular uh, holiday, so to speak, that people take abroad rather than they do on their own uh, doorstep. So I see that the, the problem in front of us is, is busier skies. Um, it's still being very much uh, human control. Control towers are still uh, human-led, and the pilots are still communicating their routes and their heights, etc. So I feel that it needs to come 
firstly more automated, which opens up the developments we can do in software and machine learning. Uh, but secondly, as technology allows it, uh, that we can bring in different forms of aircraft that can move the hub closer to your home. Great. Okay, so you know, vertical airspace is basically an EV toll, something we call an EV toll company. And when I speak to my family, when they ask me, you know, what is an EV toll, I tend to say it's kind of, it's a drone with people in it. Now, of course, that's just kind of like a first order approximation. It's not, doesn't encompass everything that uh, an EV toll aircraft is. So could you explain what an EV toll aircraft is? Of course. Um, there, there, there are many elements. I think hopefully in sometime soon, someone's going to come up with a better name. Uh, as we all consider an aircraft or a plane, we immediately think of something that humans travel in. Um, and, and I think eVTOL takes away that humanistic side that we want to have it. And I think similarly, drone has connotations of people disrupting air traffic uh, flying over certain airports. So I think we need to find a, a new way of describing the industry as a whole. But if I could best describe what Vertical does in it using eVTOL aircraft, it, it's, it's utilizing distributed propulsion. So in this case, rather than having a helicopter with one particular rotor and propeller that's powering that lift, we're actually spreading that lift over, over multiple surfaces. Uh, and we're giving that ability to take off vertically, hence the name with the vertical takeoff, um, but also allowing a transition, if necessary, to travel further using cruise. So you're utilizing two different types of flying. Um, so tip, think of your typical aircraft uh, being with two wings, but then we're adding the abilities of a helicopter to that. Great. So you meant, just mentioned before that some of the key bottlenecks in terms of short-haul flight. So vertical airspace is building an eVTOL aircraft. So what are some of the, the key specs that you really are trying to incorporate on your aircraft? And then what are some of the, the missions or what are some of the flight routes that you think that you want to be serving in the future? Of course. Uh, I think there's been a, a lot of um, analysis done. Uh, by, by the likes of, of major aerospace consultancies into the various routes. I think what they're not taking into consideration yet is some of the pitfalls and hurdles of trying to make an aircraft that is safe to the standards that we consider flying at at the moment uh, and then applying that into the industry of, of what a route might look like. So what we're kind of doing differently at Vertical is, is stripping back the logic of what actually, how far can a battery take you? And then putting in the understanding that it's got to have a safety uh, allowance in case something does go wrong in the air to make sure it does come down as safely as possible. So that does actually shrink some of the routes. Uh, I, I will be honest with, with the likes of, of certain companies talking about 500 miles. Bell released in Las Vegas only uh, a week and a half ago about their 150 mile uh, distance on battery only. I think uh, unless we're seeing battery tech that hasn't uh, entered the real world market yet, and obviously for certification it will have to have done that, uh, I, I don't think these numbers are necessarily that realistic. So we're working on smaller distance to begin with, and we believe that technology will catch up eventually. So in the five, 10 year range, we'll be looking at slightly more bigger radiuses. Um, so I guess to answer your second part of that question, that what routes I consider as being viable, I think at the moment it will be from outer to inner city. I see the idea that um, that last mile logic, be that from uh, distribution centers, so not necessarily just carrying people, but also uh, you know parcels and deliveries, that we'll see a lot more of this happening uh, via, via electric powered aircraft. Right. Okay, so on your website, you have a really neat video of one of your prototypes that is already flying. So could you explain, perhaps, of course, I'll put a link to that video in the show notes, but could you perhaps... <clears throat> Uh, explain some of the, the key features of the aircraft. What does it currently look like and what is it currently capable of, uh, of doing? 
Yeah, it's, so this was um, a effectively a learning tool for our company when we were founded back in 2016, uh, as we understood the, I guess, the difficulties in creating uh, an eVTOL aircraft. Um, we, we often see, as, as we do, drones flying very comfortably, uh, and, and we feel that we could just magnify the size of that, and it will fly in a similar kind of way. But what we certainly learned from early on is that a small drone being then moved into a much bigger aircraft, uh, you've got all sorts of forces at play, such as inertia and, uh, and actually uh, bigger forces of actually wind and things like that that you cannot just take into consideration as being just something that you can forget about. You've got to build an aircraft around all of these things. So it was very much a learning tool. Uh, we, you'll notice when you watch the video, it's a, it's a quadcopter, um, which doesn't allow any form of, of redundancy for safety. But again, we weren't building this to actually take uh, passengers. It was for us a learning tool. Um, but it is big. It was the biggest uh, aircraft certified for experimental flying by the CAA, um, also the heaviest. Um, so it, you know, it proved a lot of capabilities within our organization. Bear in mind there were just six engineers focusing on the building of that, and they did that over six months. Um, that, that, that sort of facilitated our growth into this market and understanding what is, what is achievable. Right. And so perhaps if you can talk about this, so how would a prototype like this develop to, to develop a capability where you could have something from a distribution center to the center of a city? What are some of the factors that you would have to add or to change to be able to do that? Yeah, so I think fundamentally, uh, it was understanding a lot about the the battery tech. Um, so initially, just the realization of the power requirements uh, to, to make an aircraft of that size. Bear in mind, this was almost a, a, a ton, 790 kilos uh, of, of aircraft to lift up. So you have huge forces at play. So it was firstly a very useful realization of rather being a company that puts renders out in the market and says what they dream about building in the future, we were in the process of already uh, playing with a very big aircraft to get some of that feedback. And bear in mind, this is a lot of what engineers do is you can only build so much within a CFD environment, so it's com computational fluid dynamics, and build out models uh, where you can actually understand how an aircraft flies. But we worked out it's about 40% more that you can actually do in the air. Um, so we needed to fly that aircraft to get all that feedback and see what were the, the pitfalls, limitations. So for instance, when you look at the video, you'll see that we are using uh, ducts um, as far as uh, minimizing noise from, from the rotors, uh, but also it gives you a better downstream uh, or downwash from, from the actual propellers themselves. Um, but what we found is actually in forward motion, they, they came more of a hindrance than, than a positive aspect. So as much as they look very good and to your, your classic way of looking at, a, a, I guess, an eVTOL aircraft, ducks do seem to make sense because of safety. They cover the, the rotors, et cetera. But, but actually, in, in reality, they, they hinder fast forward speed movement. Um, so that was just one of the learnings that we took away. And also the time from having to build those ducks that we know some of the other organizations are now using. We certainly felt like we learned everything we could um, from the flights that we did with that. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so maybe zooming out a little bit in terms of the, the engineering. So what are, so you've, you've mentioned noise, you've mentioned CFD and aerodynamics. So what are some of the, you know, the key design drivers in, in terms of building these aircraft? So bigger aircraft we typically know, okay, we want to minimize mass as much as possible. I'm sure that this also plays a factor here, but what are some of the, the key design drivers you really need to get right to, to have a, a good product? So I would put safety as, as paramount number one. Um, so when we talked about the quadcopter having only four rotors, so if there's a failure of one of those, uh, 
uh, then, then you'd risk the aircraft falling out of the sky. Uh, so the next iteration of our aircraft that you'll, you'll soon seeing uh, displayed ha has many more. Um, and that's really to create what we call triple redundancy. So it's not even if one of those propellers fails, you could have two. So we talk about bird strike or uh, if there was a malfunction in one part of the aircraft, it, it will still very much land safely. Um, the second part, as we mentioned, is noise. Uh, so we're doing a lot of work around the, the use of these propellers and, and generating a noise that not necessarily is quieter, but resonates at a sound that's not so irritating uh, for people's ears. Um, and again, that's going to be crucial to, to land within uh, city environments. But actually, as we're sat here with, with Rainer, uh, we're in a, an industrial estate. So we do feel that there are going to be areas that will have a higher allowance. And we do think that industrial states might be the more likely place we'll see these skyports uh, arriving at the top of buildings. Right, great, fascinating. So, um, you know, th this whole EV toll market seems to be exploding somewhat at the, uh, at the moment. I spoke to someone at Airbus recently and they counted, I think, over 100 different startups worldwide working on this topic. So, like, the, the first question, you know, that pops to my mind is, well, first of all, how are you, you know, differentiating yourself? What is unique about uh, vertical airspace? Mm -hmm. And then, of course, is there anything you can say about perhaps some of the, you know, fanciful visions that are coming out of from the likes of Uber and, and Silicon Valley? Yeah, there's a, I've got to be careful with my words because um, I, I work within many groups myself that uh, we have other competitors uh, very openly uh, speak about some of the hurdles we, we're all finding. So, um, I guess, especially being in a commercial world, I always look at a competitive landscape. What, what makes us unique compared to others? Um, what what Rainer will shortly see is, a, is after taking around a tour of our, of our facility is that we're building. Um, I think there are many of those 138 competitors, I think I read last week, that are have some fantastic uh, design engineers who are coming out with some stunning designs. Um, but the one thing that we did from day one here was build. And we are constantly working on uh, the next aircraft beyond the next aircraft. So our design team are already building our third aircraft. And they're taking lessons learned already as we go through the process of testing our next one. So I think that's one key differentiator. Number two is working with the authorities from day one. So rather than creating an aircraft, which some of our competitors have done, <clears throat> and then going backwards and having to sort of take that to the to the uh, the authorities to get certain areas of it approved, we're actually building aircraft around their requirements for us. So, for instance, Yasa have now put out a special set of conditions for eVTOL aircraft, uh, which have a lot more allowance around battery technology. And we're now building our battery technology around those requirements. Right, great. Yeah, so certification is one thing you've, you just mentioned, where, uh, again, it's one of the other topics that you, you keep, keep hearing about is that some people seem to be very pessimistic about having any sort of certification framework in place within, let's say, the next five to ten years. What are your thoughts in terms of, especially that EASA has now got the special eVTOL uh, subsection in terms of what are your thoughts on the on the developing class of certification frameworks? I think what they'll find, bear in mind, some of the, the bigger players here, such as Airbus and Boeing, ha have multiple projects working in this space. Um, the pressure will move the authorities to react. And I think uh, over time, we'll see a very much an acceptance, uh, both in the authorities' eyes to, to the safety and standards that we're building it, but also uh, from more of the general, uh, I guess, uh, civilizations looking at these aircraft in the sky and accepting that this actually is a future form of transport. I think it, those two will happen together. So the timelines, um, we do see 
you know, the early uh, 2020s as, as a kind of idea that this is where we're going to see them. Um, I think we'll begin to see them in perhaps roles outside of city centers, uh, and then they'll slowly migrate into more populated areas. Right. And so the, the, the second question that I, I have specifically for you is because you, you come from a commercial side is in terms of the economics. Obviously, there are multiple different business models that we could have. You could have something where you have a ride sharing model where the person actually owns the aircraft, flies around and takes people around. Or it could be that some other company or owns a fleet of, of, of aircraft or it could be something like net jets where you're kind of like partially owning an aircraft. What are your thoughts in terms of kind of the different uh, economic models and business models that could develop in this space? So I look at uh, the organization we have here, for instance, and uh, I, I, I sit within a warehouse, but actually I, I call it more of a design powerhouse. We're here to evolve and come out with an aircraft that is fully certified and then look out to the market to then grow that. So that be uh, have a fuselage builder, have a, a distinctive motor designer, the battery. You know, so we, we'll be using multiple other organizations to build an aircraft that we have our own intellectual property held within that. As far as then taking that to market, I personally feel that the industry will drive the areas where this might be found. So, for instance, uh, as we'll see it outside of city centers, I think we'll start seeing high, high valuable goods be moved. You know, the TFL, for instance, are the first to accept that they do see uh, this technology moving forwards, but they can only see it in humanitarian use. So in the next two years, they're going to be ferrying uh, blood between the hospitals. Uh, in London. The, in London. But they don't believe that the use of, of, of ferrying people uh, around a city necessitates having these aircraft yet. They don't evaluate the risk to reward ratio yet because they don't see them in other cities. But what we're trying to do, and this is very much how I work in these forums, it is to try and bring them around to this acceptance that London is looked to upon most of the world as a, as a leading uh, city for, for both you know, transport infrastructure, for, for, you know, for, for businesses to thrive. And so they've got to move quicker. And I, you know, I think we, we've got to realize that moving people is actually a, a highly valuable uh, resource that we, we can actually transfer around the place. And um, again, it's probably taking the model from Tesla, but they began with their model C around high net worth individuals. At the end of the day, this technology does come at much of a premium um, with battery technology, for instance, make up a lot of that cost. So I believe the initial offering in aircraft will probably be going to the more of the high net worth individuals, and then we'll see it open out to the mass market as we bring down the cost and the certification gets cheaper. Yeah, I guess you could probably make the same case for computers and smartphones that it was probably very similar in it's that case. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. I don't think it could work the other way around unless there was a, a big drive by, by the government. You know, we're seeing um, other countries, for instance, Finland, New Zealand, uh, California being a big part of the United States is pushing this industry and they are pushing their own funds and money coming from government level because they realize that they actually want their industry to be the leader. And I think one thing I'd really reach out to to our own government, I know they're beginning to do this, for instance, with the Amy Johnson Trust and some of the other ATI sponsored applications at the moment is, is to really push funding back into British engineering uh, so we can move quicker uh, and start competing on the world circuit. Right, great. So one one final question about perhaps your your specific expertise because you've worked in big data before is that we've now you know we're hearing more about self-driving cars. Is there something like a self-flying 
<laughs> aircraft in the pipeline. Is that feasible at all, or is that a pipe dream? I believe that it will it will come into play uh, in the not too distant future. I would I would hate to try and put a figure out there. I think uh, some of the you know some of these profound organizations, ones that we use for daily commuting, um, are, are saying figures that I don't believe are quite possible yet. Um, however, uh, for a lot of um, engineering going into the third dimension and take it into sky as I suddenly learned through 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 studying it, uh, it, it adds complication but weirdly enough with automation it, it reduces it we've got many less variables at play than a typical car going through a journey um, we were looking at uh, just humanitarian cases for journeys that could do medivacs within city centers or in a military role and interestingly enough, you've got enough data from previous aircraft having landed in those locations that you could almost replicate them down to down to uh, you know the 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 safety level that would be necessary for it to recreate exactly that process. So I do think that we'll see automation come into play. Well, whether it will be before um, vehicles and cars on the road, uh, I, I wouldn't again want to hedge my bets. Uh, but I, I suddenly see that we're building the aircraft at the moment with full automation allowed in it but we won't be switching it on until the authorities take away the pilot. Right, fascinating. So how's, how's the project development, developing and how can you know, listeners keep up to date with uh, all that you're doing here at Vertical Aerospace? So this is something that I'm uh, working very closely with our communications team at the moment, but we have a website. Um, but, but really what I would suggest doing is, is searching in this space. We'll be putting a lot of articles out over the coming months. And as we grow, and, and especially when we release our next aircraft, we'll be flying at Farnborough later this year. We're doing a specialist uh, um, event around these types of vehicles, so urban vehicles. So you'll suddenly see us. I will, we'll be making a lot of noise when we, when we push out our next aircraft. So That's great to hear. Space. Absolutely. Well, Michael, thanks for taking the time and thanks for coming on the podcast. Pleasure, Ryan. Thank you. If you would like to learn more about vertical aerospace, then head over to airspaceengineeringblog.com forward slash podcast, where you will find show notes about everything we discussed in today's episode. And if you enjoy the Aerospace Engineering Podcast, then there are a number of ways you can support it. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're tuning in. You can share it on social media with your friends and family, or you can support the podcast directly on Patreon. And with that, thank you very much for listening and talk to you next time.